0: Well, good evening, men. It is wonderful to be with you this evening. I've been looking forward to this all summer since we last met together on Wednesday nights back in June, at the beginning of June. I've been looking forward not only to resuming our fellowship times on Wednesday evenings, uh, but also I've been very much looking forward to the topic that will occupy our attention over the coming months. Uh, We've entitled it, The Mercies of God, a study of the components of salvation. I'm going to get into that in, in just a, a few moments. There are a few things, though, that I, I do want to also add to the announcements as we get started here in, in Men of the Word for this year. If you were part of Men of the Word last year, you remember that we provided you with an opportunity to take some online classes that are offered by the Master's Seminary through a ministry called the Institute for Church Leadership. It's, it's all online. Every course is 10 hours of video lectures, and there's some little quizzes along the way to help keep you attentive and to test your retention of the knowledge. Last year, we offered a discount for men and men of the Word of $25 for uh, Old Testament Survey Part 1, and $25 for Old Testament Survey Part 2. Now, we're doing that again this fall. We're offering, at a discounted price, we're offering New Testament Survey Part 1. And uh, you can take that for $25. You can register for this at the Institute of Church Leadership. You can register for this and get it for $25. There's a code that you have to use when you check out at the uh, at the end of that registration process for this particular course uh, but it'll be an opportunity for you on your own time, uh, according to your own schedule, to work through a survey of half of the New Testament. The, uh, th- the other half will offer after the new year. Uh, it'll, it'll provide you an opportunity to do some additional study beyond what we're doing here. It's not connected to what we're studying here for this season in Men of the Word, but it's an opportunity for you to deepen your knowledge of the scripture. After all, we are men of the word, and so we want to give you as many opportunities as we, as we can uh, for you to to deepen your understanding uh, of the scriptures. I'm going to send out an email about this in the coming days. I just wanted to make you aware of it. The email will include the instructions and all the details and things of, of that nature. Uh, one more thing that I, I wanted to do as well. We have several of our Men who uh, are going through various health uh, issues right now. We want to pray for a couple of them in particular. I know there's some other ones yet, and I haven't asked you yet whether I can pray for you in front of the whole group. So I won't mention your names just in case you have some uh, re- requests with respect to that. But we do want to pray for Sonny Elderman, who has some uh, some problems with his knee and his hip, some serious issues related to some impending replacement surgery. We want to pray for Sonny, as well as Harry Rosas, was just recently diagnosed with cancer. And so we're going to pray for him. I've, I've asked him whether that's okay, we can do that. And he said, yes, he'd love our prayers. Uh, as well, Bill Clint uh, had hip rep- replacement surgery. Uh, and Burton Michelson, a longtime member here at, at the church, uh, is not here on Wednesday nights, but most of you know Burton. So we're going to pray for those three individuals by name, but I know there's several others of you, and uh, it's just a reminder uh, that uh, we have opportunity and responsibility to bear each other up in prayer. So let's take a moment to pray for these brothers and uh, their particular trials. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this evening, our anticipation is high. We This topic, the topic of salvation is so immense, it's vast, it's broad, it's deep, and it's so very personal. And we pray, Father, at the beginning of this series, that throughout this year, as we study the different components of this wonderful doctrine, that you would grant us understanding, that as we study, our understanding of the truth would conform to the standard of your word, that we would understand salvation according to the way that you've revealed it. And we know that you have revealed your gospel, your your plan of salvation, in a way that would demonstrate and would display your glory. You want us to understand this doctrine. You want us to see the manifold glory of all your attributes and perfections on display in salvation. And so as we start, we ask that you would grant us that understanding. We pray for several of our brothers who are going through particular trials in the physical realm right now. We think of Harry, we think of Bill, we think of Burton, we think of Sonny, and we ask that They are not with us tonight, but that you would, uh, Sonny isn't with us, Burton isn't with us, Bill isn't with us, but Harry's with us. We, We pray for those men that you would grant them much wisdom and endurance as they go through this trial, and we ask that as they go through these trials, they would come to know you, your grace, your mercy, your sovereignty, your wisdom in ways they have never known before, and that... In each of their situations, you would use them as instruments of the gospel to friends and family members, nurses and doctors who do not know you, that they can be the demonstration of your grace, the messenger of your mercy in their lives. Again, Father, we ask for your blessing in their lives and we ask for your blessing upon us tonight as we study. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our, our study this evening is going to focus on an introduction to the topic of, of salvation, an introduction uh, to the doctrine. And so this, this evening, we're going to look at some of the introductory things that we have to discuss before we begin looking more in depth at the various components of this doctrine, the various aspects and ingredients which make this doctrine so profound and so beautiful. The series is entitled, The Mercies of God. And that is taken from some words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 in verse 1. And you know Romans 12 verse 1. It's this verse that appears on on many mantles, perhaps even bumper stickers. It's a verse that is very familiar to us. The Apostle Paul says this, Therefore... I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The letter to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, is considered Paul's most impactful, influential letter. If anyone studies the Apostle Paul, he must be drawn to this major treatise of doctrine. And in this major treatise of doctrine, you have this central command appear here in Romans 12, verse 1. Up to this point, Paul has traveled through 11 chapters of profound doctrine, expounding the righteousness of God, expounding things like justification, expounding things like our adoption, union with Christ, and so on and so forth. He has described all of God's magnificent acts in salvation. He's described our great need for salvation. And then in chapter 12, after all of this territory, he gets to his central command where he commands us to present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. But notice how Paul does this. He doesn't begin his letter with these words. He first talks about all these various components of salvation. And after describing all that God has done, then in chapter 12, verse 1, he comes up with this central command, this central exhortation for the Christian life, to live our lives as a living and holy sacrifice. But he does this based upon the foundation, which he calls the mercies of of God. That term mercy relates to God's particular compassion. It's not the normal word for mercy that we find in the New Testament. It, it's a word that particularly emphasizes God's empathy, his, his sympathy for sinners and their plight. It's one of these terms that sheds light on the, the, the grace and mercy of God that he has for sinners, for the lost. But more than that, when he calls this the mercies of God, it's it's not just some sentimental idea. Rather, that term mercies in the plural refers to all of these doctrines of salvation that Paul has described in the previous 11 chapters. And here's the, the main takeaway from that. That those 11 chapters of doctrine form the basis the exhortation to understand and apply and live out the exhortation. We must first come to an understanding of the mercies of God before we can live out the imperative, the exhortation, the command truly in a way that pleases the Lord. We must first understand the indicatives, the facts of what God has done to enable us to apply this Exhortation, And that's what this study will be all about over the coming months. I want to then tonight talk about some of the, the, the introductory issues related to this. First of all, I want to look at the purpose. Why do we need to do this? I've kind of touched on one of the purposes already, but I want to give you several purposes which explain why this study of salvation is so important for you right now where you're at today. First of all, this doctrine is central to the Christian life. It is that single thing which definitively defines and distinguishes us. It is central to our lives. And what divides mankind ultimately in God's economy is not skin color. It's not economic status. It's not language It's not ethnicity. What divides human beings into two camps, into two categories, is this singular issue called salvation. And so it is central to our lives because it is that thing which defines who we are. First and foremost, whether we are in Christ or outside of Christ. John Murray The writer of a very important book on this topic called Redemption, Accomplished and Applied said this, the accomplishment of redemption, or as it has frequently been called, the atonement, is central in our Christian faith. At the most basic level of our existence, we are either in Christ or we're outside of Christ. There are only those two categories. There is no exception. You are either at peace with God through Christ and the salvation found in him, or you are not. There's no one on the fence. There's no one in some middle ground. This is the dividing mark of all humanity. And in light of that, we have to realize that this is an issue of utmost importance. I think of what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, when he said this, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. When Paul uses that terminology, that phraseology, he's getting Timothy to take special attention to what he's going to say. He's essentially underscoring what he's going to say. He's putting it in bold font, flashing lights, and saying this, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's that's what the whole scripture is about, about Christ coming to save sinners through this plan of redemption. There can be nothing so important to us at a personal level than this reality. Second, we study the doctrine of salvation because all of the ethical commands of Christ are possible only as the effect of. Of salvation, never the cause. The ethical commands of Christ are only possible as the effect of salvation. In other words, when you read of of, of all the teachings of Christ and his apostles, when you read of those instructions and, and their commands, you must understand that you can only fulfill those things in a way that is pleasing to God if salvation is already present if the indicative, if the work of God has already begun in your life. Otherwise, you cannot possibly do these things in a way that is pleasing to God, in a way that will result in salvation. What God does is the cause. What we do is the response. As I've already mentioned, the indicatives, the statements of fact, they come first. And only then the imperatives, the statements of command. This is foundational to understanding the gospel in the right sense. Understanding this indicative imperative contrast. And what comes first. So the Christian life is, is all about becoming who we already are in Christ. And therefore, if we are to understand and live out the intent of the imperatives, the commands we must first understand the indicatives. To place the imperatives first always leads to false religion, and it is damning. Consider again Romans 12, verse 1, and that first word that's found there, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living And holy sacrifice. We find that many times throughout Paul's letters in particular, this the statement of fact first, what God has done, and then the exhortations next. Therefore do this. Another such example is in Romans chapter six, verses eight to twelve, where Paul gives us another example of of the imperative first, or, or the indicative first, and then the imperative. He says this in verses 8 to 12, chapter 6 of Romans. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, and then he has the therefore. Therefore, having understood this reality of dying in Christ and being raised again in Christ, then he gets to the therefore. Only once you've understood that at an acceptable, sufficient level, can you then understand what comes next. And what comes next is the imperative. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. This is so important. The indicative comes first, then the imperative. And this reality is what has been at the basis of some of the biggest theological disputes in church history. I think of the debate between Augustine and Pelagius. And Augustine is known to have said this very important statement that reflects the imperative, or or the indicative imperative order. He says this, Grant what thou commandest, and then command what thou wilt. Do you get that? This is important. This explains the, the essence of the gospel. Grant what thou commandest, and then command what thou wilt. Augustine recognizes Th- that God's work comes first, and he must work before anything else can follow. Grant what thou commandest, and then command what thou will. Do your work in me, O God, and then you can command, and I can do it. Number three, we study the doctrine of salvation because of this. While we are saved by a simple gospel, it is so simple that children can believe and be saved. Our understanding of this gospel is not to remain simplistic. We are saved by a simple gospel, but our understanding of it is not to remain simplistic. I'm, remember, I'm reminded of what uh, the, the writer of Hebrews wrote to his audience. When he said in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 to 14, he says this. Concerning him, concerning Jesus... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature because, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What's the writer talking about? He is, he is pointing to the fact that those members in the audience, a good number of them to whom he writes, they're still drinking out of the bottle. After years of, of already knowing about Jesus and all that he did for them, they're, they're still drinking out of the spiritual bottle. And the writer's saying, okay, enough. You need to be teaching this already. And I still have to feed you a bottle. And I, when we look at at evangelicalism today, and especially men, especially men, there's so many of them, after years of being in Christ, they're still drinking from a bottle. They still have no appetite for solid food, for the meat of the doctrine of salvation and how sad that is. They're content with their milk or at best their pablum when they could enjoy the wonderful food of steak, the steak of the gospel. Number four, we study the doctrine of salvation because the danger of deception about salvation is real. The danger of deception about salvation Is real. This deception may be caused by others, by false teachers, or this deception may be caused by oneself. But in any case, it is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternal significance. Think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount as he brought that sermon to a close. He he said this in Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 and following. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you practice lawlessness. Now, what's interesting here is that you would think that casting out demons and prophesying and performing miracles would be the will of God. But Jesus says, no, it's not. Not if you don't know me. And again, there is an implicit reference to this indicative first. You must know God. You must know what he has done. And then comes the fulfillment of his will. But these to whom Jesus is referring had not understood the Lord. And so he will say to them, I never knew you. Despite all your so-called miracles and prophecies. Away from me. Into eternal damnation. Some other sad words are found in Romans chapter 10 verses 1 to 3 as the apostle Paul opens his heart to let us have a look at how he views his own people, the people of Israel. And we see deception here as, as, as Paul describes them. And he says this brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They have, no, they, they, they have sincerity, but without knowledge. Knowledge. And again, this is often where deception arises. There are many today in various religious confessions who who are the pinnacles of sincerity, the models of what it means to be genuinely committed, and yet they are just like the Jews. They don't have zeal in accordance with the knowledge of true salvation, and they are lost. And so when we talk about why study the doctrine of salvation, we do so so that we ourselves will not be deceived. That we ourselves will have an understanding consistent with the knowledge God has revealed in his word. And finally, number five, when we talk about the need to study the doctrine of salvation, very simply, and this is enough in and of itself. We study the doctrine of salvation Because it brings glory to God. Nothing that I know of in all my study of Scripture, nothing puts the manifold glory of God and the breadth and the depth of his perfections on display like his work in salvation. And as you study this topic more and more, and as, as your knowledge grows, it always leads forth to doxology, a deeper and deeper and pure and, purer and more profound doxology of praise to God. And that's what God is looking for. He wants you to come to that knowledge of salvation so you see who he is and how you are a beneficiary of that glorious nature and all he has done. And so as you get into that solid meat, uh, looking at things like election and atonement, propitiation, regeneration, adoption, union with Christ, glorification, resurrections, you look into these things deeply, your heart will overflow with the sense of the greatness of God. And you will find that it is so sweet to walk with him and his Glory will be the purpose for which you live in this life. This is what we see in the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans chapter 11. The words just before Romans 12 verse 1. Where Paul says, therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God. Just before that. As he makes this transition, there is a statement of doxology there that we've heard before. But it comes after these 11 chapters of doctrine, these 11 chapters on the doctrines of salvation, and he's brought to this climax before he even talks about the imperative. He's brought to this climax as he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is brought to these words because of the doctrines of salvation. As he has probed their depths, as he has written about them in these 11 chapters, he cannot help but respond in these profound words. Or consider what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 17. I already quoted part of verse 15 to you already, where Paul says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then what follows that is a mini testimony on the part of the Apostle Paul as he looks at how Jesus Christ came to save him. And I'll read about that in just a moment. But then notice how the text quickly transitions to doxology. Paul cannot help but talk about the glory of God when he thinks of his own salvation. He says this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And now a beautiful statement that sums up everything. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If you are here for one reason even tonight and for this, this year, it is for this. You want to glorify the Lord. You want to see your understanding deepen and conform to the revelation of God about this wonderful doctrine so that you can simply respond the way Paul does to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. You cannot have more profound words and pleasing words on your tongue than those. Well, as we continue here, we also need to consider some of the key terms. We have to identify these terms and define them. As we talk about the doctrine of salvation, I'm going to be raising or or, or discussing terms throughout this whole series. Every evening that we gather for this study, we'll talk about some special terms. But there are some general ones that we have to talk about tonight. In fact, I want to give you three terms that we'll talk about tonight as as the basis for the rest of our study. First of all, the term soteriology. I'm sure you've heard this term before, soteriology. And I just want to make sure that you understand what it means. Sometimes theologians can craft these complex terms and use them without actually explaining them. So I want to make sure that we explain our important terms. The word soteriology comes from two Greek words. Soteriology comes from two Greek words. The first one, soteria, it means salvation. Salvation. Soteria. And then the Greek term logos, which means word. So soteriology is really a word about salvation. Or in more simple ways or, or general ways, we call it the study. Of salvation, Soteriology is the study of salvation. Soteria and Lagos. A second term is the term salvation itself. And this one is really loaded because this term is, is the term that we use to summarize so many different concepts. I'm going to give you some of the basic concepts of this term tonight. But... Really, we're going to be defining this term for the whole year because this term salvation includes so many different nuances. But let's talk about some basic ideas of this term tonight. When we talk about salvation, first of all, we can conceive of it. We can describe it as one complete act. Salvation is one complete act. We can look at the thing at salvation from the big picture and see it as one complete act. MacArthur and Mayhew define it this way. Salvation is, quote, the divine act of delivering a believer from the power and curse of sin and then restoring that individual to the fellowship with God for which humans were originally intended. It's a good definition. And it looks at salvation In the big picture, one comprehensive, complete act. But we can also look at salvation as being comprised of many individual acts. Salvation is comprised of numerous operations, which are separate from each other, yet contingent upon each other. In other words, salvation is not just one act of God. It is a series of acts, but these acts are intertwined. They're contingent. You cannot separate them. They do not occur without the rest of them. So it's many individual acts yet contingent and intertwined. Another component of salvation is that we must understand that it is trinitarian in nature it is trinitarian in nature the members of the godhead all have distinct roles and responsibilities in this work it's it's not as if they're all doing their separate thing it's again all intertwined but the father has particular responsibilities we see described for us in this work of salvation the son has particular responsibilities and the spirit does as well. I want to show you this chart now it's on in your notes called an overview of salvation. And again we're trying to describe salvation in its in its various components and we want to describe it also in terms of its trinitarian nature. So first of all we can take the this doctrine of salvation and we can put it into three essential categories. Three essential categories. First, it's arrangement. It's plan. It's planning. Secondly, that leads to its accomplishment. It's accomplishment. And then thirdly, it's application. We see this these three categories or, or these three elements of the work of redemption described for us in Scripture. And so each stage is contingent upon the previous state so that the ultimate goal of redemption arranged or redemption planned and redemption accomplished is redemption applied, says Mark Jones. It's a good statement. Now, let me give a few more notes about these three categories. When we talk about its arrangement, the arrangement of salvation, we see testimony in scripture that describes when it was arranged before time. This is an arrangement that took place even before time came into existence. Even before God did that first creative act, he planned redemption. He planned salvation. And we see this particularly in those elements of salvation related to things like foreknowledge, election, predestination. We were predestined in him before the foundation of the world. That's relating to the arrangement of salvation. When we talk about its accomplishment, we're talking about an actual historical event. When was the plan of redemption accomplished? Brought into historical reality. That came at one specific moment of time. The cross work that Jesus did. Around the year eighty thirty 30 Is when redemption was accomplished. Up until that precise historical moment. History was flowing towards that. But, but the basis for redemption had not been yet accomplished. It had only been planned. And foretold, but not accomplished. But that was accomplished in those series of days in which Christ was crucified as an atonement for our sin, as a substitution, and then as he was raised from the dead. That took place at one precise moment in history. And the focus there was the work of the Son Now, when we talk about the third category of redemption, we talk about its application, how it is made real to us. And this takes place in relative time. And what I mean by that is that salvation was applied to me. It moved from its plan before time to its accomplishment in Christ and his cross work to my particular life at a at a time that was relevant and, 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 and that was relative to me. It was applied back in 1990, in my life. Some of you, before then, before I was saved, before I, was, I had salvation applied to me, you were saved. Some of you, just more recently. Salvation is applied at at this relative time to God's particular plan for, for your life. And that's always unique to the individual. And that's what makes salvation so precious and so personal. And this is a work of the Spirit. Now, there's some other things that we need to note also when we look at the doctrine of salvation. And as we go through this, some of these things may be new to you or they may be things that you've heard of for the first time. And, and, and you may not grasp the full nuance of these things. And that's okay because we're going to be talking about these throughout the rest of this year. But one thing to note is salvation it not only takes place in three categories, uh, three elements. It's planning or it's arrangement, it's accomplishment and it's application But there's also two kinds of activities that God does in salvation. They're what we call judicial acts and transformational acts. Judicial, sometimes called forensic, if you're into the legal world, and then transformational or recreative acts. Let me just explain those and explain why this is important. Judicial acts are those that establish a change in relationship between God and man. So, for example, justification is a judicial act. It's a declaration that God makes in his tribunal. He does it. It's judicial. It's a pronouncement. It's a declaration. The doctrine of adoption is the same. It's not something that we necessarily even feel. But it's something that God declares, and it relates to a change in relationship. We're no longer enemies of God. We now are children of God. And think of adoption in in the real world as an analogy to that. The, The child is not your own until the court makes that final determination. And it's not anything that you necessarily feel. It's just declared. Well, the same thing happens in God's judicial court. These are judicial acts. But salvation is not just about pronouncements. And this is important to understand. Salvation is also about transformation. Salvation also encompasses acts that change our moral character. So while we are changed in our position, according to the judicial acts, our relationship to God, according to those judicial acts, salvation also brings about Transformation at a very real conscious level in our moral character. In the way that we are to reflect the glory of God in our own lives. Salvation includes that transformation. In our day, this second kind of act has in some circles been minimized or ignored. To make salvation all about these judicial pronouncements. All about justification. And that's it. But when that happens, that is not a full understanding of the doctrine of salvation. Salvation also necessarily brings about real, realized transformation. And that would include things like the doctrine of sanctification. And we're going to spend some time later this year studying sanctification and other aspects of salvation that are transformational In nature, they're they're felt, they're realized in our own lives, and we can point to them, and it's through these transformational acts of God that we get the fruit of salvation realized. Now, it's important to note this, and I'll come back to this later. Judicial kinds of acts always precede the transformation. God's declaration, God's court activity, Always comes first. And we're going to talk about some of the errors associated with those who confuse those. Who put the transformational actions first. And then the judicial. Making the judicial declarations contingent upon the changes that have taken place in our lives. That's essentially the Roman Catholic view. That God gives you help. And you start to to, to experience transformation at a very real level. And then God declares you saved. And that is an error that is of life and death seriousness. So we'll talk about those. Another aspect here is that salvation achieves two goals. And this is not a difficult one to understand. It it, It includes the goal of removal of sin. And secondly, the second goal, it includes conformity to the son. The goal of salvation is to to see the putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new. The extermination of sin, as well as the putting on, the taking on of Christ-likeness. Removal of sin involves both instant acts. when, When God breaks the power of sin in your life, he breaks the the chains of sin and says you're no longer enslaved. But it also includes those ongoing acts of salvation, of, of putting off the old habits, the behaviors that still arise from the flesh. But secondly, it also involves this positive conformity to the son that the goal of salvation is to see you become like your older brother, Jesus, the, the firstborn among many. Not in the sense that he was created, but in the sense that he is the preeminent example, the model for all those who would be saved. We must understand then, sin and the old man are not merely descriptions of a lack of righteousness they describe that which is at enmity with God. God doesn't just supply a lack that we have. We're going to talk about this special over the next two weeks. Sin is not a lack. Sin is an aggressive rebellion against God. It is wickedness. It is evil. But righteousness is not simply a return to innocence. Sometimes you'll have people say that, that, that we are saved in the sense that we are brought back to the state of Adam before the fall. We're going to see that salvation takes us beyond that. Salvation doesn't just take us back to a state of innocence. Salvation brings us to a state of active righteousness, something which is far better than innocence. And on the one hand, we may say that Adam before the fall enjoyed a a world without sin and the curse, and we can envy him for that. But at the same time, if you possess salvation, you've got something better than Adam had before the fall, something far better. Adam, in his innocence, did not have that proactive righteousness. He was merely innocent. And salvation is moving us to that righteousness it mirrors the righteousness of God. Another term to understand here, ordo salutis, very quickly. The phrase ordo salutis is made up of two Latin terms. You're going to hear this or read about this if you read some of your textbooks. So I want to explain this one. Ordo salutis. Ordo salutis. Two Latin words, ordo, and we can understand or guess what that means. Order. Ordo, Latin. Order, English. And salutis is the Latin term for salvation. So sometimes, just to make a quick reference to a whole concept, you'll read theologians in, in their works, you'll read them, read them using this term, ordo salutis. And it simply means the order of salvation. The order of these contingent acts of God as he brings it from its planning or its Arrangement to its final destiny. One writer said this, the process, this is ordo salutis, the process by which the work of salvation wrought in Christ is subjectively realized in the hearts and lives of sinners. It aims at describing in their logical order and also in their interrelations, the various movements of the Holy Spirit in the application of the work of redemption. Now, I'm going to show you uh, an example of one theologian's ordo salutis, John Bunyan's, a very complex ordo salutis, as he tried to place all these different nuances in a sequential order, chronological and and logical. Ours is not going to be that complicated. But look at it from this perspective. Let's turn back for a moment just to this, this table that I have on the screen here. This chart. When we talk about Ordo Salutis. We are particularly talking about the application of salvation. The application of salvation. So how is salvation applied in your life? These various activities that God does. From calling and regeneration. Faith. Repentance. Adoption. Sanctification. And glorification. What order does that come in? Now you might be saying, why is that important? I'll get to that in just a moment. But it is important to consider the, 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 the way in which this, this takes place. Because this is so important that one mistake in the ordering of this can lead you into serious error. Can lead you into serious error. Where does this. Basis for an ordo salutis come from Romans eight twenty nine to 30. Notice what Paul says here. He says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these who called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So we can look at this as a chain. They're sequential acts. But that leads us to the difficulty of the study. The study is somewhat difficult when it gets to this order of salutis. And, And it's difficult because there's no single text. There's no one text in the scriptures that gives us a definitive detailed list. We wish there was. But there isn't. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You also don't find a definitive text that gives you the best definition of the Trinity. But we believe it with all our hearts, and it's in the Scriptures. The same thing with Ordo Salutis. There's no definitive text, but there's a lot of teaching on this. But because there isn't, it makes it difficult. Some texts also provide lists that are in differing orders, Because in that particular case, the writer, the biblical writer is making some other emphasis. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, there's a little bit of a different order to that. And that kind of complicates things. How do we reconcile these different orders? Was there no order whatsoever? And the writers are just kind of throwing things together. Or can we see from the context that a writer may be placing something out of order, or emphasizing a particular element because of the emphasis in the broader context. As well, some terms are used differently by biblical writers, and this is a a challenge. The term regeneration is is used differently by Paul uh, and by Luke. So we've got to be careful to define terms properly, and we'll work through that as we go through this series. And here's a big one. Some of the acts of salvation are chronological in order, and no one disputes that. We all agree that glorification does come after regeneration in time. The moment you're regenerated, you're not glorified. We know, as those who have been regenerated, the glorification hasn't yet arrived. So there's certain elements that we can easily say, yeah, that that's... That's different chronology, a different time in in chronology. But there's other things that happen instantaneously. Things like faith and justification. What comes first? They're different. They're distinct. What comes first? We'll discuss that. In in fact, what's important is that some of these things will have this logical cause and effect effect relationship and and this is what is most debated in the area of soteriology this is where the theologians really get up in arms with each other and for good reason these are serious issues and I'm just going to give you an example of how it can be difficult to understand where exactly these things fit so let me look at some of these instantaneous components of salvation that occur at the moment of conversion So, if you have a timeline here up on the screen, I've got a timeline, and let's say that your moment of conversion was tonight, that the Lord worked in your life, and tonight you came to know him salvifically. We call that your conversion. But at your conversion, at that moment, multiple things are going on all at the same second, all instantaneously, regeneration, faith. Repentance, justification, adoption, all these things are happening in the same moment. And so when we look at it in terms of this view of chronology, you can't see a difference. But if we flip that around just a little bit, instead of looking at it from the top down and looking on it as if we're looking from above on a timeline, instead look at it from the side. There are distinct activities that are occurring Instantaneously, These are distinct. Regeneration is not the same thing as faith. And faith is not the same thing as justification. And justification is not the same thing as adoption. They're all interrelated and necessarily so. But they're different. And so the question is, what occurs first in order to bring about the rest? And again, where you land on this will... Determine, for example, whether you're going to be Calvinistic or Arminian. We use those terms to, to describe how people fall in this particular category. In fact, throughout all of church history, the, the greatest debates, really, as it pertains to the doctrine of salvation, uh, they occur over the Ordo Salutis. So Augustine and Pelagius is Ordo Salutis kind of stuff. Luther and Erasmus, ordo salutis kind of stuff. And John Calvin and Jacob Arminius, ordo salutis. So over the next several months, I hope to explain these things at a very accessible level so that you can understand why these debates exist and the significance. They are important. But you may ask, why bother with it if it is divisive? I mean, we know for sure the... The debates between Arminians and Calvinists are very heated. So why bother? Why not just ignore this topic and just live in harmony with the different camps? Let me read to you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I think this establishes a good answer. Why bother with the ordo salutis since it is divisive? He said this, and I quote, I think that is a foolish question. We bother about it, to use the term, because the Scripture has a great deal to say about it. Not only that, any child of God should be anxious to understand it as far as he can. I will go even further. If I were to give my experience in this pulpit tonight, I should have to put it like this. I know of nothing so strengthening to faith Nothing which so builds up my assurance, nothing which gives me such certainty about the blessed hope for which I am destined as the understanding of Christian doctrine, the understanding of the way, yea, the mechanism of salvation. And that is why I personally bother with it. Now, there's some more material in your notes there. I'm not going to cover it tonight because our time is up. It has to do with the, the methodology of, uh, of salvation, or the study of salvation, how we approach the topic methodologically. How do we study it? Let me just say this. There's some incorrect approaches. There's the experiential approach, the experiential approach, which just says, I'm going to define salvation according to how I feel it. Many people understand salvation only or solely through the lens of their experience, and that leads to great error. Some take the rational approach. I'm going to understand salvation based on how it appeals or appears to me logically, and that too is a very dangerous approach. Logic is important, experience is important, but these are not the authorities. Some take a confessional approach where they say that I am going to hold to an understanding of salvation that my particular religious confession or denomination told me. Those are all incorrect and inadequate. The correct approach is the biblical approach. The biblical approach. The nature of salvation is studied and understood according to how it is described by God. And this is a key thing, men, as we look ahead that you need to hold me accountable so that everything that I would say would be justified or driven by Scripture, not by experience, not by reasoning, but by Scripture. And then your responsibility is to conform your understanding of the doctrine of salvation, not to your experience and how things appear to be, but how things really are as they are described by God. And it could very well be that there are some errors in your understanding and that this whole series is going to be instrumental in changing that. Final thing, additional resources for study. I'm going to give you three tonight recommendations that you can take with you as far as acquiring these if you can. A good place to start in your own study of this is the Biblical Doctrine book by MacArthur and Mayhew. Chapter 7 contains a section on salvation. It's almost 200 pages long, but it is very, very good material. If you don't have a textbook like this as a man, you need to get it. Don't let your wife buy it and read it. I mean, if she wants to read it, that's fine, but you say to her, after I'm done... I get it first, okay? You can quote me on that, and I'll, I'll talk with your wives if that's the case. But I can guarantee you this, that probably most of them would be very happy if you said that. So get this book if you can, and, and this section is really a, a summary of everything that we're going to be studying this year. Another book, which is shorter, it's a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. It's a little bit more technical, smaller, but... A little bit deeper. But if you have read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, if you've read that book and you've, 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 you've appreciated that, that work, this is the same kind of approach written by a different author, John Murray, very good writer, but who looks, at, instead of at the attributes of God, he looks at the doctrine of salvation. So I highly recommend that. And then I'm going to recommend this, the hymn book, Hymns of Grace. In fact, at various times throughout this year, I'm going to be giving you some homework to do in hymns of grace. Because as I said, the doctrine of salvation is not some, some visceral doctrine, something that just pertains to, to our reasoning. No, it's something that must lead us to doxology. And if we really understand the doctrine of salvation well, we're going to be able to pick up hymns of grace and turn to these these various hymns, you're going to see how many of these hymns deal with this doctrine. And we're going to find our identity in those hymns. And we're going to say, He knows it. And I join my voice with those words. So get one of those and incorporate it into your worship. In fact, that's what we're going to do right now. As the music team comes forward to lead us in two songs. These are songs that you probably haven't heard before. And you're going to hear other songs throughout the year. That you may not be familiar with. I've carefully selected these hymns. Not based on their familiarity per se. But based on their lyrics. So I have one very big request for you. While you're here. Don't worry about whether you can sing or not. Just sing. And pay attention to the words. The lyrics. And sing them out. As doxology to God, he is our audience, not each other. He is our audience. So sing these words as you mean it. And the two that we'll sing tonight, our God of grace is the first one that we'll sing. And before we do, I will, uh, I'll pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we start this year, as we've prayed already, we pray that you would accomplish great things in our lives. There's nothing more precious that we possess than the gift of salvation. Nothing in our existence, nothing in our bank accounts, nothing in the list of, on our insurance policy, nothing compares with the treasure of the gift you've given us in salvation. I pray that you would Help us understand it much more profoundly. And then we know that as that happens, there will be many different implications that will fall into place as the fruit of that knowledge is made manifest in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.